Hi guys and welcome back to another true crime and makeup time video. If you're new here, my name is Sara and I post a new true crime video every single week. So if you love makeup and you love true crime, definitely hit that notification bell button so you don't miss any more videos and hit the like button too and subscribe guys it would mean so much to me. So today's case is not a topic that I really enjoy talking about or even discussing, but I think that us as human beings raising the next generation, I think it's something that we need to be aware of. We're going to be talking about the Epen family and what happened to their baby boy, Matthew. This family hired a nanny and just 10 weeks later, tragedy struck. This was a sensational trial and it was really a media circus. And this nanny was also the first British person to have her trial shown live on UK TV. I'm going to put a disclaimer right here that this case discusses harm being done to a child and it will be distressing to some and I'm just going to try my best. So let's get into it. So the Epen family consists of Sunil Epen and his wife, Deborah, and the two of them got married in the year 1990 after they met in medical school. Sunil was originally from Chicago, where his father was also a pediatrician. Sunil, however, went to work as an anesthetist. I can't say that word, anesthetist, um, at a Boston hospital. And the two of them, Sunil and Deborah, they had their first child in the year 1994. His name was Brendan. And that's when they decided to take on an au pair, au pair. I'd always heard of this term, but I kind of just thought it was just a nanny. But it is not just a nanny. It's basically someone who comes and lives with you and basically does everything kind of like a mom would. They become part of the family. They cook, they clean, they take the children to activities. They'll help them with their homework. Like they kind of just do it all. Now, as Sunil and Deborah, they were both, you know, in the medical field and they had high demanding jobs. So I believe that's probably why they decided they needed someone like this as opposed to just a nanny who clocks in and clocks out. Deborah was a working mom. She was an ophthalmologist. And when she had her first child, Brendan, she continued working, although she did so on a part-time basis. And the two of them, they really did come from really high achieving families. Like I said, Sunil's father, he was a pediatrician, but Deborah's parents, um, she came from a family actually of seven kids and both her parents, one was a teacher and one was a nurse. So they had like high achieving families. Now, after having Brendan, she actually passed on a chief residency at the New England Medical Center, as well as a fellowship with the Boston Children's Hospital. And this was because she was pregnant with Matthew. Now she passed on these opportunities and took on this part-time job because she wanted to have time with her kids. Her job was only five minutes away from her home, but she worked three shifts that were eight hours each. So she worked three times a week for eight hours. And Sunil and Deborah, they were kind of young. Deborah was only 32 and she had only finished her medical training like two years prior to Matthew's uh, birth. Deborah stated that the couple's lifestyle was pretty hectic and it was like a balancing act trying to juggle these professional careers along with the two children. So I believe in the course of having the children, they had actually gone through a few au pairs. Uh, they had three and then they decided to hire a fourth one when Matthew was a little bit older. The fourth au pair they decided to hire 
Her name was Louise Woodward. So let's talk about Louise. Louise Woodward was born on February 8th, 1978 in Cheshire, England. Louise lived with her family until the year 1996 until she turned 18 years old and she was like, I need to take a gap year and do something a bit different. So she decided to take a year off from college and go to the United States at the age of 18 years old. Now, I kind of want it to be clear that she was taking a gap year. She had literally just turned 18 years old. She had finished high school and she was supposed to go straight to college, but she decided to take the year off to have an adventure, to explore whatever she wanted to do. And that's why she went to the United States. She wanted to be somewhere new and just experience new experiences. So for this, Louise decided to register with an agency for an au pair job. She flew to Boston shortly after finishing her A-levels in 1996. And I believe A-levels, correct me if I'm wrong, are like Australia's VCE. So they are the last two years of high school, I believe. And I think these last two years are important for you to like get into universities and basically have that qualification to be allowed to enter. Correct me if I'm wrong. Now, at this agency, it was the EFO pair of Cambridge. This agency was the one that actually decided to sponsor Louise to move to Boston. And I don't know how, but apparently she met all the requirements and had all the qualifications and she completed four days of training to be an au pair before she was sent to Boston. So when she got to Boston, Louise was immediately placed with one family. However, she was unhappy with this curfew that this family had placed on her. So she left that family. She wasn't happy. Then she gets placed with a second family. Same issue. She's not happy with the curfew. She leaves. So they said when Louise came, she did not even know how to change a diaper. And they soon realized like, okay, this chick isn't equipped to look after our eight-month-old boy. And the couple also grew concerned about Louise's constant late nights in Boston and the fact that she always wanted to use the family car. So they actually banned her or denied her from using the family car to go out. And then she ended up rejecting that 11 p.m. curfew they set on her. So then soon they were like, okay, we'll just find you another family in Boston that's looking for an au pair and maybe it'll be a better fit. There was another man by the name of Richard Afrikian and he actually banned Louise from his home because he felt that Louise was a bad influence on his au pair and she had become friends with his au pair and he felt that she was so boy crazy. She was just badly influencing his au pair, you know. He said some pretty horrible things about her. He said, she, you know, was a bad influence. She was unhappy. She was manipulative. She was miserable. She was just a horrible person in his eyes. So then after that second family, Louise gets placed with the Eben family. And she started working for them in December of 1996. And they lived in Newton, Massachusetts. <laughs> and she was employed as their au pair to look after their two sons, Brendan, who was two years old, and then Matthew, who was nearly eight months old. Now, Louise was not prepared for this role. She was not ready for the responsibilities and the rules that the Eaton family 
had for her. I don't feel that she is ready to look after. I don't even think she's qualified to look after children. I mean, there's not much more I could find in relation to what her qualifications were, what her, you know, past experience with children was, but I don't think she had any. And first of all, she's taking a gap year to enjoy her life, to explore, to have an adventure. I mean, looking after children majority of the time, that's not a fun thing. It's a huge responsibility. The couple saying that she was boy crazy, irresponsible, lazy. I mean, of course she was. She was freaking 19 years old. I don't care what anyone says. I would never allow someone that young to look after my child unless for some reason they had a whole heap of experience with kids. I feel you really need to be educated about kids and you need to have experience with kids, with kids of different ages, with babies, with, you know what I mean? Like it's, you don't, I don't know. I don't know how you're going to finish high school being a kid yourself and be like, okay, I'm going to go look after a two-year-old and a eight-month-old baby. Like it's not just one night or one night a week. It's you're looking after them almost like their second mother. You're living with them. What agency is this that allows this? I mean, where's the experience? I don't know. A lot of people may come for me and disagree with me, but that's, I'm a mom. That's my opinion. And that's what I would do with my kids. I just wouldn't know. I know how hard it is to look after children. And for someone else to look after my children that doesn't love my children, it would be even harder. I feel like an au pair needs to be super experienced super responsible, not someone who keeps missing curfew or complaining about curfew and who doesn't really seem to give a crap. Anyway, moving on. Friends of Louise from back home would say that Louise was this gentle vegetarian. She was a regular churchgoer. She played the clarinet and she was a big sister to a lot of her younger cousins. But those that knew her in the US stated that she was a partier. And she had seen the musical Rent 20 times and she had found trouble in all three of the homes that the au pair agency had placed her in. Now, Sunil and Deborah obviously had rules for Louise. And this is something that really annoyed me when I was reading up on this. They were saying, I read comments from people saying, oh my gosh, Sunil and Deborah had rules for Louise. She was a grown woman. She didn't need rules. Excuse me. Of course they had rules. She's living with them under their roof. She is using their resources, looking after their children. Like 100% she should have had rules. She's there for a job. She's not there to party. And I don't really know how that would work. I'm guessing she would have had like time off from, she can't work full time, right? But the fact that she lives with them, I feel like she would have to have been working majority of the time. So of course she had to have rules. Sunil and Deborah stated that they came up with this list of rules in January of 1997. And they said even with these rules, within a month of Louise being there, they were like questioning whether she even wanted to be in the job. They stated that these rules were in place for the safety and well-being of their kids. However, Louise didn't really have patience with their children. She didn't seem dedicated to the job. She would go out and party and stay out late and not be ready in the morning when they needed her. She would be sleeping. And I mean, how frustrating would that be? Like you're paying this person to come and take the load off your shoulders. Because as a parent, sometimes you just need that, especially when you're going to work, like 
I could imagine in the morning they're trying to get themselves ready and go. And you can do that because you've got someone living with you to do that and take the child from you so that you can be responsible for getting to work on time. But if this person's sleeping in and not even there, it's like it's worse them doing that than not being there at all. Someone who is employed by you, who's sleeping in because they're tired from going out. I mean, had she been drinking? Oh, no, no, honey, she'd be fired. Thank you. Louise was known to often go out in downtown Boston, stay out late, party, and always miss her curfew. Sunil and Deborah had to constantly like wake her up and she wouldn't even wake up when they needed her. They also wouldn't allow Louise to talk on the phone, I think to her family for longer than five to 10 minutes, because I'm guessing, well, from watching interviews, it seemed that she would spend hours or a long time just chatting with them because she's catching up with them, which is fine. I think that's fine because you're in a different country, but don't do that when you're supposed to be looking after my children. Can you imagine when I'm not, if you're doing that in front of me, what are you doing when I'm not around? I mean, you take your eyes off kids for two seconds and they end up in freaking down the street. Like, you know what I mean? You have to pay attention. And maybe she wasn't doing that. That's why they set that limitation of five to 10 minutes max on a phone call to her family, friends, whatever it was. I doubt they cared if Louise was calling and talking during her off times, you know, at night when she's supposed to be sleeping, not partying, you know. Louise had barely been with this family for like a few weeks before the relationship just began to disintegrate. So on 3rd February 1997, she had been with them for like nearly three months at that point. Not even. But Deborah, she decided to sort of confront Louise and she had a conversation with her saying, look, if you don't want to be here, it's okay. We understand. But Louise immediately said, no, no, no. You know, I really like you guys and I really want this to work out. So Deborah decided not to push this any further and she just accepts it. And she says, okay, well, you know, um, she started to explain the nap schedule for the two-year-old son, Brendan, at this point. And she just said, I don't want Brendan to be sleeping after 3 p.m. because moms will know if he sleeps past 3 p.m., then he's not going to sleep tonight really well. So don't let him nap past 3 p.m. Like that was, I don't even, that's not even a rule. She's just updating the kid's schedule, you know? So the next day on February 4th, 1997, Louise goes in, wakes up the kids and immediately she notices that Matthew, the eight, eight month old boy was just not acting like himself. She said he was just super grumpy and not his happy bubbly self. So she decided to give him a bath thinking that, okay, maybe he's just a little bit sick or, you know, going through something. After his bath, Louise puts baby Matthew down for a nap. And then this doesn't make sense to me. She goes to wake him up from his nap at 3.15 p.m. And I'm like, if you woke him up and he was not in a good mood, when the hell did you put him down for his nap? Because that's a long nap for an eight-month-old. But maybe the timing's just off. So anyway, when she went to wake him up from this nap, she realized he was not breathing. Louise then takes him down downstairs into the living room to perform CPR on him. At least this was her story. And she tried to ring Sunil and Deborah, 
at work, but they were not answering the phone. So she immediately calls 911 at 3.45 p.m. So that's not really immediately because if she woke him up at 3.15, that's half an hour of him not breathing. You know, half an hour. It's a long time. So when she is on the phone with 911, she tells the operator, you know, baby Matthew is barely breathing and I think he must have choked on his own vomit during his nap. The police arrive at the Epen residence soon after and they notice baby Matthew. He's on the floor of the living room and again, he's barely breathing. He's gasping for air and he just does not look good. And they immediately rush him to the Boston Children's Hospital. And while he's at the hospital being examined, the doctors realize that baby Matthew's injuries are far more severe than a baby who might have choked on his own vomit. Matthew had a two and a half inch crack in his skull and his retinas were were bleeding, which basically meant he had bleeding at the back of his eyes. He also had a subdural hematoma, which is basically bleeding between the skull and the brain, like blood had just been pooling in there. He also had hemorrhaging to his neck and spinal cord and a fractured wrist from choking on his own vomit. He was in a comatose state and he was quickly taken into surgery and then put on life support. Now, after being observed, doctors believed that Matthew sustained all these injuries from being a victim of shaken baby syndrome. Shaken baby syndrome, which is also known as shaken impact syndrome, is a serious, serious form of abuse inflicted on a child. Usually it occurs when a parent or someone looking after the child violently shakes the baby, usually out of anger or frustration because the baby won't stop crying or fussing. And the reason why this happens is because babies, they have very weak neck muscles, but then they're born with quite large heads, like their heads are not in proportion to the rest of their body. So this weak neck can't really support this big head. And therefore, when, you know, you cause them to shake violently like that, their heads bounce back and forth and it can result in serious, honestly, a lot of the times it's fatal brain injuries. And in that same vein, if you shake the baby and then that force is interrupted by the baby's head being hit on a surface, I mean, that usually is no coming back. This type of abuse is normally seen on kids under the age of two, but majority of cases happen under the age of one. A lot of the victims are between the ages of three to just eight months old. But children can still suffer from these kind of injuries up until the age of four because they're still developing. But the fact that like people even do that to a baby, I think they shake them to get them to stop. But that just makes them cry even more. But how I don't think it's just a light shake. You know, I think it's like I don't think it's like a little frustrated shake. It must be. Oh, I don't want to think about it. Oh, so anyway, back to the story prior to. Luis calling the hospital and sorry, the ambulance, Deborah was actually at work and she was about to call home to check 
on baby, sorry, on check on Brendan to make sure that Louise hadn't let him sleep past 3 p.m. And she was actually going to call at around 3 p.m. But she decided against this against it because she didn't want to seem like she was hovering and, you know, trying to like check up on Louise. Then right before 4 p.m., Deborah's pager rang. On her pager, she saw that a code had been left that it was an emergency and to call home. So she was actually with a patient at the time. So she leaves the patient and she goes to ring home. Louise picks up the phone and she says, it's Maddie. I think he's choked on his vomit. And upon hearing that, oh my God, Deborah, she was like frantic. And she goes, did you, you know, did you, did you call 911? Did you try the CPR that we showed you? And I'm guessing after that, she just immediately rushed over to the hospital. Now, as she was making her way to the hospital, Deborah states that she was terrified and she was just saying her prayers, praying that Maddie was okay. So she gets to the emergency room and Deborah's now by Maddie's side. And I don't even know how she does, does this next part, but I'm guessing her professional side kicks in and she says to the doctors, can I examine him? So she was an ophthalmologist, right? So she grabs the tools and she peers into Maddie's eyes and what does she see? Massive retinal bleeding. So while Matthew is in a coma at the hospital, the police, they go to the Epen house to interview Louise. Louise was interviewed by Sergeant Byrne and when she gets interviewed, she tells the sergeant that she was upset with Matthew because he was being super cranky and fussy and it had made her upset. Louise then admits that she had possibly been a little rough with Matthew because of his nonstop crying. It had angered her and she had tossed him onto the bed onto a pile of towels. Later, she says she was angry and she dropped Matthew on the bathroom floor and he had possibly hit his head on the side of the bathtub. Like what? What? Just, you just dropped him on the bathroom floor? Like, what? On, on tiles? Uh, like, an eighth month, eight, oh my god, I can't even talk. The next morning, Louise is arrested for the assault and battery of a child. Six days later, on 9th February 1997, poor baby Matthew was taken off life support. And this decision was made by both his parents, Sunil and Deborah. Deborah says she can remember that day she was in his crib. She asked herself the questions, can he live with half a brain? Can he live paralyzed? Is that a good life? She said it was so hard to imagine his body. It was so perfect, but she knew how much trauma his brain had suffered. She said, you know, I'm a doctor. I should have known that there was nothing more they could do. But I wanted to be sure. That's why they waited before taking him off life support. I don't, I don't even know how parents do that and make that decision. The strength. Forget the strength. The They have to live for their other child. But it's just like, ugh, just the pain they would have been going through. Poor baby. So now because Matthew was no longer alive, Louise is charged has now been upped to murder and her bail is now denied.
Louise's trial began on October 7th, 1997 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. During the trial, there were many professionals that testified for the prosecution. There was a neurosurgeon, an ophthalmologist, two pathologists, and a few child abuse experts that all testified for the prosecution. All of these people testified that Matthew's injuries took place due to the result of violent shaking. The lawyers in the trial, and when I watched this, I was like, they literally used their hands and like demonstrated how they believed Matthew would have been shaken and the force that would have been used to cause his injuries. And it really makes you imagine it. Another expert witness that testified said that he actually disagreed with the shaken baby syndrome diagnosis and said that Matthew's injuries to him were more consistent with that of blunt force trauma and that the evidence showed that, you know, the subdural hematoma, that it was due to blunt force trauma. He stated that Matthew was hit by or hit onto an object which caused him to react the way that he did. But even though he disagreed with the cause of the injuries, he still stated that when the injury occurred, he would have reacted immediately to the injury, meaning that whoever caused the injury on him would have had to be with him in the moment. The only person that was with him in the moment was Louise. The prosecution claimed that Louise killed Matthew in a fit of being unhappy, frustrated, and in a relentless rage. But Louise's lawyers strongly rejected that claim. They claimed that Matthew's injuries had actually occurred several weeks prior. They stated that Matthew actually had this injury on his head and it was an undetected injury. And what happened the day that he was rushed to hospital was that due to mild jarring or some little minor thing that Louise did, caused this injury to re-bleed and get worse. There were several experts that testified for the defense that agreed with this theory and said that it was possible that Matthew's brain injury occurred, you know, before the day that he was taken to the hospital. This one I don't get because the pathologist stated that there was too much brain damage to be consistent with the prosecution's claim that it was caused from the violent shaking. This guy stated that there was a lack of bruising or hemorrhaging on his neck muscles and as well as there was no bruising on his rib cage or back because like you know if you grab the baby like this there has to be some bruising or some sort of injuries there and he said there wasn't any so he disputed the shaken baby syndrome claim and because of this this pathologist said that he reached the conclusion that Matthew was not violently shaken before his death. What's crazy is that Matthew's parents, Sunil and Deborah, they were actually thrown under the bus during this trial. The defense brought up the fact that Matthew's parents, they were doctors and they possibly harmed baby Matthew. But then in that same vein, they go and say, well, Louise's agency, you know, the au pair agency is to blame because they did not give Louise any training. Like it's their fault, which I do agree to some degree. Then Louise takes the stand, even though she was told not to. She denied that she had harmed Matthew and said that on the day that the incident took place, she found him to just be 
in a really cranky, crappy mood, and she found him to be lethargic, especially after he woke up from his nap. She said he was lying there with his eyes half closed and he was just gasping for breath. She then goes on to say that she began to clap at Matthew to startle him, I guess. And when he didn't respond to that, she picked him up and she shook him gently. And she actually takes her hands and she shakes it. And you can see like she's shaking it almost like dramatically gently. Like this is all I shook him, you know, like trying to show that, yeah, I did. But it was very light. And I think that was done to kind of reignite the claim of he already had this pre-existing brain injury and this mild shaking may have caused it to re-bleed. She said that she attempted to revive Matthew and then frantically paged his father, his doctor, and then called 911. Now, I watched her on the stand and immediately she just annoyed me. And I know you're not supposed to judge, blah, 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 but okay, I'm judging. Okay, no, I'm kidding. But it's it's hard not to if you watch her behavior on stand. I know she's supposed to defend herself and, you know, that's what you're supposed to do when you're the defendant. But the way she does it, it's almost like she doesn't get how serious the situation is. And yet she's only 19. Maybe she doesn't get it. She even smirked and laughed while on the stand. Everything she did was was criticized. Everything. She was then called an aspiring little actress who told half-truths. Like, they just labeled her from her behavior and the way she was being. According to one investigator, she had apparently told him that she had been a little bit rough with Matthew. But then later on, she goes on and she, like, denies ever making that statement. At one point during the interview, Louis says to the investigators that she had popped the baby on the bed and in British terms pop to pop means to like place down but in the US pop means to hit the baby so that was sort of lost in translation. She also would admit on the stand that the demands that Sunil and Deborah had placed on her were far too much and that she was working far longer hours than she was expected to She also admitted that she was frustrated with the job and the rules and the way it was going as opposed to what she kind of imagined it going. But despite all that, she would never, ever hurt Matthew. She admitted that they also imposed a 12 o'clock curfew on her. But then she also stated that when she was being interviewed, she would not agree to a curfew. So that was weird. And given that the curfew was the reason why she left her previous jobs, it's weird that she would agree to the 12 o'clock curfew with the Ebens. So during her cross-examination, her defense attorney asks her, well, did you ever slam Matthew on the head? She immediately replies, no. And then he says, did you do anything to hurt Matthew? And she says, no, I never would. And a lot of the trial mainly focused on how Matthew's injuries were inflicted and the prosecution and the defense both had such differing explanations and both Sunil and Deborah they would testify for the prosecution and they basically painted a picture of how crap Louise really was at her job as an au pair they stated that majority of the time Louise would refuse to even come out of her bedroom on the mornings that Deborah was working and she had to look after the children. She would just outright refuse to even come out. 
they said that they were really unhappy with her work and especially the fact that she was always coming home so late past her curfew and just being irresponsible that they ended up issuing her an ultimatum saying if you don't figure this out you're done and that was done and that happened the week before Matthew was killed. Originally the jury was given options of murder in the first degree, second degree or manslaughter but then they just switched it to okay it's either murder or set her free, acquit her. It was all or nothing. On October 30th, 1997, Louise was found guilty of second-degree murder. When she was handed the guilty verdict, she almost collapsed and she was sobbing and crying so loudly. She was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 15 years to be served. Her mother, Sue, really strongly supported Louise, would never believe that Louise would do something like this. And she made a statement saying that they've made a huge mistake and they need to set it right. Two days after her conviction, it came out that the jurors had actually been split before they came to the guilty verdict. One juror came and said that none of them thought that Louise wanted to murder Matthew. And one of them even wanted to, or some of them even wanted to acquit her, but then they were convinced into finding her guilty which I don't know, convinced by who? Isn't that the job of the jury to deliberate and then everyone finds, you know, everyone comes to a conclusion? It's it's weird to be like we were convinced by who? By the rest of the jury? I mean, isn't that the way it works? Now, Louise's conviction, oh my God, it created this like mass outcry in the UK and it was like a wave of sympathy for Louise was emerging. People who supported her donated thousands and thousands of dollars towards her and her parents actually came to the US to support her. And I believe she got like $500,000 for her like trial, like from, from people donating. There were also massive protests, like massive. 10 days after her conviction, the jury's verdict was overturned by Judge Zobel he instead ruled that she was guilty of involuntary manslaughter and changed her sentence to 278 days, which was already the time she had served. She spent eight months in prison during the trial and before the trial, and the judge just sentenced her to that involuntary manslaughter and time served, 278 days. He did make a statement, however, I'll read it to you. He said, Viewing the evidence broadly, as I am permitted to do so, okay, I believe that the circumstances in which the defendant acted were characterized by confusion, inexperience, frustration, immaturity, and some anger, but not malice, supporting a conviction of second-degree murder. She was frustrated by her inability to quiet the crying child. She was a little rough with him under circumstances where another, perhaps wiser person, would have sought to restrain their physical impulse. The roughness was sufficient to start or restart a bleeding that escalated fatally. I view the evidence as disclosing confusion, fright, and bad judgment rather than rage or malice. What is going on? To me, that sounds like the judge is like, yeah, she's guilty. She did shake him, 
but I'm still going to give her involuntary manslaughter. What? The prosecution was like, no, nah, we're going to do everything we can to reconvict Louise and get her to pay for what she did. But the defense was like, no, the judge's decision basically is like she's vindicated, she's free. So this judge's verdict was then overturned and then it was taken to the Supreme Court, but then the freaking same verdict was granted anyway, which then allowed Louise to be free. People celebrated when they found out that Louise was um, being set free. I mean, even on TV, there's someone like popping champagne that she's free. And this like is so confusing to me because did people forget that a child lost his life? Is that not what this case is about? And not to mention this child lost his life while in her care. A perfectly healthy, innocent child. In this case, the sympathy for a young woman whose freedom could be in jeopardy outweighed that of a child that lay dead. It's disgusting. So after Louise was set free, she traveled back to the UK and in 1998 and she ends up going to university and graduates in 2002. In 2004, she began working as a lawyer under a two-year contract and she went on to say that the conviction that she got of the involuntary manslaughter conviction was just, she didn't deserve that. It was wrong. In 2005, she left the law to go teach salsa dancing with her boyfriend. And today I believe she is still a dance teacher. In 2006, she met a businessman named Anthony Elks. And today they're married and they have a daughter. Her daughter was born in 2014. And she made a statement to, um, to the media. I'll read it to you. She said, I have done nothing wrong. I am entitled to enjoy my life. I'm not going to apologize for being happy. So after the whole trial and everything took place, the Epens, they filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Louise. And that was settled outside, outside of court and it wasn't disclosed, the settlement amount. But under its terms, Louise agreed to donate any money she earned from the death of Matthew. You know, if she wrote a book or interviews, that any of that money would be donated straight to charity. I think the interesting thing about this case is it would honestly become like a symbol of the working woman and how she needs to look after her children. The conflict of women who prefer to go to work and leave the care of their children in the hands of a nanny. Many, many people would criticize Deborah for going to work rather than herself staying at home to look after her children, Brendan and Matthew. An article printed in the media had a title that went like this. Young Matthew Epen is dead, murdered by the nanny hired to care for him. His untimely demise begs the question, where was his mother? Can you believe that? Like it blows my mind. That's the world we're living in. How freaking disgusting is the media? are some people how can you blame a mother for going to work to what if you don't work you're lazy and you're a gold digger who's wanting to sit at home and use your husband's money and drink champagne all day and live the life if you work you're a terrible mother who doesn't love her children and you only care about your career if you work part-time why do you even bother because the money you make part-time doesn't even cover childcare. so you don't win 
either way, as a mom, you don't win sometimes. Being a parent is literally one of the most hardest jobs in the world. You're not only drained physically, mentally, but emotionally too. And you're literally molding and shaping an entire human being that you're sending out into the world. It's so frustrating. It's really unbelievable. And you know what? Moms have enough guilt. I'm pretty sure nobody wants to be working. They all want to be with their kids, but you can't have it all. You can't have it. Oh, frustrating. Deborah and Sunil are still currently practicing medicine, I believe. Sunil as an anesthesiologist and um, Deborah as an ophthalmologist. Life for them changed in a positive way. They had two more children, a girl and a boy, Kevin and Elizabeth, and neither of them have ever been in the care of a nanny. The family moved home and they ended up having to buy a house through their trust so that nobody would know where they were and to be away from the press. She got so many hate letters that demonized her for being a mom who chose to work rather than look after her kids. So they developed the Maddie Epen Foundation to raise awareness about shaken baby syndrome and to help educate and teach caregivers how to calm a crying child and basically to calm themselves too, hopefully. But I don't know how you move on from that. You can't. You're just in this like nest of grief, grieving. So honestly, after reading through all the opinions, all the evidence, it's like they still don't have a clear cause of Matthew's death. I don't think she wanted to harm him. I just think that she was inexperienced. She was 19 years old, having three days of training as an au pair, which in those three days, did they teach her things about kids or do they teach her how to cook, clean and, you know, look after a home and stuff like that too. So I feel like it's not easy. A baby that, and especially a baby that barely knew you, he only knew her for like a month or so, two months. Maybe he wasn't settling and she just lost it. She was just frustrated and she's tired from partying the night before. Who knows? Who really knows what happened? A crying baby that won't stop crying can drive you crazy. It really can. You have to be equipped to know how to care and understand a child. You need to understand their behavior, why they are crying, mad, sad, happy, whatever. They can't even regulate their behavior, their behavior for a really long time until, until they're much older. There are just too many cases where children are injured by caregivers. And for me to believe that it was an existing brain injury that you know, caused his death. Usually existing brain injuries don't cause no symptoms. Maddie would have been showing some symptoms, right? If there was, you know, an existing injury, there had to have been something. But if he was normal, the only symptom showed up after Louise cared for him. Poor, poor baby Matthew. Like when I read these cases, it just immediately transports me to the moment that that child was being harmed or being hurt whatever whenever his injuries occurred like how he must have been feeling how he must have been scared how he probably wanted his mom or his dad like it really really breaks my heart and especially having kids it's like you can imagine it and imagine it being your kid and it's just breaks your heart it really does it's the saddest thing I honestly just wish I could save all the kids in the world I really I really wish I could maybe someday I will what do you guys think? Let me know your thoughts on this case down below. Thank you so much for watching, guys. And I will see you in the next one. Besitos. Bye.